in a large major metro. That's going to be kind of the best of all worlds from a risk perspective, but it's also going to leave you with maybe a, an investment that you know pulls out two to three percent a year in cash, cash on cash. So it's going to be relatively low yield. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing really good. I'm getting like antsy though to get out of here i know you've already hit the road and been on the road for a little bit but definitely getting antsy to to hit the road because it's you know nearing that time but uh yeah where are you right now where in the world is annie dickerson because i know the last (laughs) time i think you were somewhere in you were heading to arizona i think the last time we talked and is that where you landed somewhere you're in yes we are in sedona arizona (laughs) We've been here for the last five days or so. We'll be here for another almost a week. And this is the longest we're staying in one place during this month-long road trip. And every time we plan one of these month-long trips, it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to have a whole month and we're going to do all these things. And we get on the road trip and it flies by. And I cannot believe, I mean, we have less than a week here and then a few days on the road on the way back, but then that's it. And then Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, no, slow it down, you know, but we're really trying to make the most of every day. I mean, Sedona is just amazing. There's so much stuff to explore and so many beautiful hikes. This whole area used to be completely underwater. And Mm -hmm. so there's these amazing rock formations all over the place. Pretty much everywhere you go in Sedona is a beautiful vista. And so it's just such a fun place and such fun people here. So we've made it a point to get out every morning to hike with the kids, tire them out. Mm -hmm. And then we have the balance of work in the afternoon. So it's a great, uh, great work life harmony on the road. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nice. Well, it sounds like fun. I definitely can't wait. I think we're going to add Arizona to the list and probably put Sedona on there too. So that'll be later on at the end of this year, but sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, cool. let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit about our guest today, yeah. Neil Walgren. So He's the chief operating officer of Mag Capital Partners. And while he didn't necessarily get into real estate to get into industrial, that's what they focus on now. And it's clear when you, when we talked to him about it and he talked about all the benefits and very little downside and so much upside, it's very clear why they focus on this asset class. And, you know, going into this conversation, I had next to zero knowledge about how it works, what the business model is, what the upside is, how the taxes work. And through this conversation, it really gave me a lot more confidence and insight into, oh, okay, now I understand how it works, why you would invest, what the business plan is, what the whole time is, and all of that. So just like our investors, a lot of our investors are learning about multifamily for the first time. This time we got to sit in that learning seat and learn about industrial. 
Yeah, it was really cool. Towards the end, we got to talk a little bit about the comparison to multifamily syndication. And he did such a good job of explaining that. And, you know, it's funny because we live and work in this multifamily syndication world. And so it's nice when somebody understands that world and can be like, okay, for class A, here's the equivalent of that. Here's what the risks look like, or here's what we evaluate. And here's what, you know, the returns could look like in a similar type of thing, but that's not what we do. Here's what we go after and they go after what would be the equivalent of what we do in the class B space, what we've typically done anyway, in the class B space in industrial. And so it was just so fascinating to learn about and be able to pick his brain and learn about you know all the risks and upside, as you had mentioned. But uh, yeah, it was just a great conversation, fun guy and learned a ton. Yeah. And I know for myself personally, you know, industrial has always scared me. It's just, you know, a foreign concept. I don't know how it works and I don't know the ins and outs, what to look for as an investor, but now I am a big step forward in that learning journey. And so for all of our listeners, whether you are new to industrial, new to multifamily, new to real estate in general, a great place to get started, whether you're interested in investing industrial or multifamily, self-storage, whatever it is, to learn about the basics and to learn how syndication works, a great place to start is to grab a copy of our book. It's called Investing for Good. And we have a free hardcover copy for all of our listeners. Just go to goodegginvestments.com forward slash book. And with that, let's dive into our conversation with Neil Walgren. Neil, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Absolutely. Now, Neil, I think you were one of the first people we've had on the show who focuses on investing in industrial assets, which is why we're so excited to have you on the show because Personally, I know very little about industrial real estate, so I'm excited to dive in and learn more. But before we do, let's start a little earlier in your story. Now, I know prior to real estate, you piloted the C-130 in both the Air Force and the Navy, logging over 2,500 flight hours with combat tours to both Iraq and Afghanistan, and eventually concluding your military career as a lieutenant commander, which is absolutely incredible. And I know that Julie and our listeners join me in expressing our sincere gratitude for your service as you know, that's what allows us to enjoy the pursuit of financial freedom and to create the life by design that we always talk about. So start by taking us back to that time. So you're climbing the ranks in the military. Did you always plan to get into real estate and business or how did that come to be part of your journey? Oh, it certainly wasn't part of the original plan, but to be fair, the, the pilot track was one I made as an 18-year-old boy, which, <laughs> you know, you're chasing fast cars and planes and all sorts of things that may or may not be part of your long-term life goals. But yeah, no, it was a great chapter. I um, really enjoyed the, you know, really military camaraderie, a lot of lifetime friends and some incredible experiences through there. And But no, my transition, I kind of hit a point with flying where I kind of realized, all right, if I keep doing this... You know, it's, it's a little less new, a little less exciting over time, which is okay. But, you know, I realized that if I stayed in the military track, I would kind of get deeper and deeper into this bureaucratic system that I realized kind of over time wasn't really the best personal fit for me. 
And then, you know, most folks who get out of military flying go into the commercial airlines. And, you know, I looked at that for some time and talked to a lot of guys, but really the one thing kind of missing in that career track, for me at least, was the kind of the, the excitement of upside. If you really are, you know, motivated, energetic, you know, looking to create value, you know, and ultimately it's a, a seniority and a longevity structured career track. So, you know, once you get hired by one of these commercial airlines, your way up the rank is 100% tied to simply what order you're hired and you're just waiting for people effectively to retire until you can move up. And, you know, as uh, appealing as that is to some people, it didn't quite resonate with my, you know, kind of life track, and <laughs> my desire for, you know, creation and, uh, you know, network. And you know, I consider myself a fairly social creature. So that was, I would say, the early pivot point for, you know, how to you know, get away from aviation and start looking at some other ideas. Mm, okay. So you're sort of exploring these potential options and you're like, I don't know this typical path that most people follow. I don't know if that's quite right for me. So then what did you do next? Where did you go from there knowing that, okay, maybe I'm going to cross this one off my list. Did you have other options you were considering at the time or how did real estate enter the picture? Well, like all good real estate stories, it started with Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And mm, always, <laughs> I had, uh, yes. Someone had recommended it to me kind of early on while I was sort of going through this process. And I connected the dots kind of early and realized, all right, commercial flying means I'm putting my personal hours connected with my own income earning potential. And, you know, I like the idea of separating that. So that was, you know, really one of the early drivers. And I love the idea of real estate and, you know, just... The more, the deeper you dive into it, you just realize this, this pot of opportunity between single family and commercial and syndications and, you know, private notes. And I mean, the list is endless on all the different kind of subcategories to, you know, really find a niche, grow it. And, you know, you can grow it yourself, grow it with others. And I love the fact that real estate is really collaborative where, I mean, honestly, there's no lack of it. It's really not, you know, this hyper-competitive field that you see in a lot of other, you know, parts of the working world. So I loved it, you know, and people are really good natured about it, kind of laid back. And I started talking and meeting folks and eventually had a kind of an early opportunity about six or seven years ago with a, uh, a gentleman who was married to a, a friend of my parents and had started a, a firm actually down in the South Bay. And his business model that he hired me onto was effectively to raise capital equity from a network of investors. And really his company was an equity marketing arm. So strictly focused toward investors. And then what we would do is we would partner with experienced operators or developers on a project by project basis. And we would be the capital arm, the equity arm, if you will, for those projects. You know, we would interface exclusively with the investors and let our partner interface directly with the project. So we did that and we would try to do repeat deals. And it was kind of neat because it was a, a great way to jump in with both feet as someone new to the real estate world, because we had operators who did, you know, multifamily, we had an operator who did, you know, land development, someone else did, uh, you know, multi-tenant retail strictly in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So to learn all these different metros and more so see, you know, so many different ways that you can structure these deals and the underwriting behind them. And one of these operators we connected with was Mag Capital. And they were our, our one of about eight folks we worked with. 
but their group was unique in that they strictly did single tenant industrial net lease. And, you know, over time, I got to kind of see all these different asset classes. And I really found that I love the team at Mag Capital and I love the product and the, the simplicity that comes with industrial, the fact that few other people are doing it from an investment level toward, you know, kind of retail and high net worth investors. And just the amazing predictability of a single tenant net lease really drew me to it. And eventually I was able to hop on with those guys full time. Okay. So pause right there and tell us, so say it again, single tenant net lease. Is that what the term is? Okay. So tell us what that is. So in the industrial space, let's back up a little bit. So just, you know, some of our listeners may or may not have a, a deep understanding of industrial. So industrial can look, you know, several different ways. Your main kind of a size and shape of industrial, if you will, is typically you have manufacturing slash warehouse industrial. And that's going to be kind of what you might imagine. You're driving down the highway, you see, you know, four metal walls, a flat roof, and really not much else besides that. And so it is effectively, it is a useful space because it's providing solid real estate at a price point that works such that a manufacturer can build value in that space inside that facility and, you know, continue to grow on that side. They typically have a a lot of land. They typically have higher ceilings to allow, you know, more functional use of that, that volume under that roof, if you will, high bay truck doors for onloading, offloading, what it is they're creating. So that's the manufacturing side. And that's what we plan. Other types of industrial, the main two are flex industrial and flex. Imagine like an industrial park where you have long buildings and they're kind of segmented and you might have, you know, something like several dozen tenants within one building. And so that's going to be more similar to a multi-tenant retail in terms of how to manage it, how to structure it. And each of the tenants are typically going to be smaller. They might be lawn care operators. They might be, you know, machine workers, you know, and just kind of local, small tenants with, with short-term leases. And it's going to mirror the, the retail space quite a bit more than the manufacturing side. And then the third type of industrial specialty, that can look a lot of different ways. Everything from, you know, state-of-the-art Amazon warehouses to, you know, even, you know, pharmaceuticals, biotech. Imagine all the type of manufacturing space they're doing with pressurized gases and, you know, safety systems and all the stuff that's required for these really high level manufacturing processes go in in a very build to suit specialized industrial building. So at the point that you guys invest, is it basically like four walls and a ceiling? It's like empty or do you invest in it? Like, does it already have some equipment and stuff in there? No, great question. So 100% of what we buy is occupied and because it's single tenant, it's binary, right? It's either on or off. So when it's on, it's 100% occupied, fully cash flowing. And you, you are typically buying the real estate, the land, and oftentimes cranes that are built into the building. But the actual like manufacturing equipment inside, that typically stays under the ownership of your tenant. So now, okay. This is fascinating. Okay. So now thinking about, because with the multifamily space, a lot of the real estate syndications that we do are in the multifamily space and people, they get that, right? Because who hasn't lived in an apartment? They understand, you know, you go in, you put in your application, you put in your deposit and you start paying your rent, right? Every month you pay your rent. So 
it sounds like in some ways this is similar in some ways it's different right so you have a single tenant who's coming in here and they have this lease so they're leasing out this space they're using it for manufacturing or storage or whatever it is and then so is it similar to the multifamily model in that effect in that you know every month you're collecting the rent are there any other risks or other considerations to think about yeah, I think an, an easy way to kind of get to those questions you just asked is to tell the acquisition story. How does a deal like this kind of come together? So we actually acquire most of our properties through a mechanism called sale leaseback. And sale leaseback is effectively when you have a, a manufacturing company that also owns their own real estate. What usually happens is that company will have been started from scratch by the founders, sometimes 40, 50 years ago. You know, it's grown profitably year over year, just very kind of organic growth, you know, really expanding their market share in whatever niche that they do. The owners typically look for an exit, right? They hit retirement age, they're looking to sell their company and kind of cash out on this, you know, baby that they, they built over time. So they will oftentimes sell to a private equity group. So private equity groups, there's a lot of sizes and shapes of those. They will usually sell to a, a smaller manufacturing focused private equity group who will be building a portfolio of manufacturing companies, often that kind of can support each other in some way, and they will acquire that building. Now, these PE groups, they are laser focused on building value in the operating company of that company they just built. What they are less interested in is owning real estate. So they say, hey, we can get a better internal ROI by reinvesting as much capital as we can into the company we just bought. We are less interested in owning bricks and mortar and, you know, roofs of the real estate. So what they do is they sell us the real estate and then take those proceeds and reinvest it into the operating company they just bought. So now they are either paying down corporate debt. They are, you know, investing in new capital improvements like new manufacturing lines. They're adding headcount. They're really doing all the things that private equity groups are excellent to just juice the growth of this new company they just bought. So what happens on a sale leaseback, we effectively give them a bunch of cash that was tied up in the building. We became the owners. And at the same time, we pre-negotiate a long-term, typically 15 to 20 year lease for them to sign. And they are becoming, uh, going from an owner position to a tenant. So they are effectively staying in place. No one's actually moving. It's all a, a paper transaction, but now they are a renter and paying a predetermined amount of rent as opposed to being an owner in that situation. And are they responsible for the property taxes or are you guys? Because I know just enough to not really know what I'm really talking about <laughs> when it comes to like triple net leases. I sure, looked sure. into it. It was like one of the asset classes I was looking at when I first got into real estate, as you mentioned earlier on. You know, there's so much to look at. And I had looked at that because I was like, ah, oh, this sounds magnificent. That was like the thing I was like going to do because just in terms of like cash flow, guaranteed cash flow and low risk and all that kind of stuff. Talk to us a little bit about that. I'm just curious how that compares to retail triple net leases. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, on one side, you have a, a gross lease, right? Gross lease means effectively the landlord pays for everything. You know, the renter simply pays the rent, has no further obligations. And then as certain responsibilities go from landlord to tenant, those are what's referred to as the three nets, the triple nets. So the first is going to be taxes. So your property taxes, if your tenant pays for those, it's a single net lease. If they 
also take on insurance, and that'll be a predetermined amount of insurance, coverage, premiums, deductibles, et cetera. Now it's a double net lease. And the third is going to be operating expenses or utilities. So effectively, you know, your water, your electric, your, you know, changing out light bulbs, repainting, and that piece is your third net. And what's interesting is on a single tenant property, we actually expand that definition to what we call absolute triple net. And absolute simply means now we're looking at what I say, fence line to fence line. So not only are they covering those three things, but let's say you need a new roof. They, re- they pay for the roof. Let's say you need to you know, redo the pavement outside. They're paying for it. Let's say landscaping needs to be done. They pay for it. You know, Really, 100% of the ownership expenses tied to that real estate all stay with that tenant in that transaction based on the terms of that lease you signed with them. Wow. So from a risk standpoint for an investor, it's pretty low, it seems like, right? Because what could possibly come up property taxes if they change or if they go higher or lower or whatever then they're responsible for that if insurance goes up or down they're responsible for that so when you on the onset of the deal really knowing what you're getting yourself into in terms of projected cash flow and whatnot and the overall you know uh, performance of the deal is pretty solid right or is there something that i'm missing <laughs> no that, that's spot on so especially okay. during the hold period your cash flow that's coming in from those rents mm-hmm. is extremely predictable. So you, you have right. effectively, as an investment group, we have effectively removed about 100% of the operational risks to our cash flow, right? So like you said, the tax assessor comes, doubles our tax assessment, doesn't matter. It's on the tenant, right? If uh, the, the insurance company comes and goes, hey, we're doubling your premiums, no big deal. It's on the tenant. You know, So all those issues that could come up to really disrupt your pro forma business planned investment model for cash, really you're insulated at, at a very high level from anything like that. And so what's great is I can look an investor in the eye and say, I can tell you almost to the cent what kind of cash flow we'll be making and I can distribute even like three years from now. And you know, very few other investments in the commercial real estate space can you do that. And so does the cash flow go down? Because anytime I think about you know, risk going down, usually with it, generally speaking in real estate, as does the cash flow. So is that true or not so true in this case? And what does a typical cash flow percentage return look like in a syndicated deal, something like this? Yeah, great question. So before we jump into that piece, it's important to understand, I'll compare this based on the experience of most of your investors likely having single family or multifamily experience. Right. So on the residential side, you're so, so like laser focused on those demographics, right? And you have to know them like the back of your hand. You need to know, you know, household income on three, five and 10 mile radiuses. You need to know what market rents are. I mean, and cause this is the difference on whether your value add business model is going to be successful or not. And so you're right. coming in with a underperforming property saying, I think I can invest this amount of capital improvements, and I think I can increase my cash flow, my rents, and increase my occupancy because of this market data in the local area. So location, location, demographics, super important. We'll get back to our conversation with Neil in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? 
Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now, back to our chat with Neil Walgren. On the industrial side, much less important. So instead, you know, I have a performing property. I actually have pre-built-in rent bumps. So based on the term of my lease, every year, without having to lift a finger, every year my rents go up typically 2 to 3% for the tenant. So that part's covered. I'm already at 100% occupancy. So really my risk is instead of location and demographics, my risk in a deal like this is in the credit worthiness of my tenant. So that is where I'm making the gamble to say, hey, I'm planning to hold this building, say, for you know, roughly five years. Do I feel fairly certain that this tenant will stay financially viable and continue paying their lease as required by their, their lease payment, or excuse me, pay their rent as required by their lease structure? And that all in a nutshell is, is referred to as tenant credit. So tenant credit can be high or it can be low. And, you know, to your point there, cash flow is typically, or returns are typically related to the relative amount of risk. So, you know, let's make a multifamily comparison, right? If you buy, you know, a brand new, fully occupied, you know, state-of-the-art apartment complex, say downtown LA or Dallas, it's great, right? It's going to it's going to, you know, people are paying high rents, but you're going to pay top dollar for that because you're going to pay a low cap rate because of the low risk of the metro. You're right downtown and there's not a lot of value to be added. It's already, you know, a class A product. It's fully occupied. There's really not a lot that can go wrong at that point, but effectively your cash on cash is going to be probably, you know, 2% or something like that. So the same goes with industrial, right? The more centrally located I am and the stronger the credit of my tenant is, is going to drive down cap rates and basically diminish my cash flow. So, you know, the class A equivalent of that example I just gave would be, I don't know, you know, say buy a Home Depot or a, you know, a Walgreens or a Walmart, right? Say in, in a large major metro, that's going to be kind of the best of all worlds from a risk perspective. 
but it's also going to leave you with maybe a, an investment that you know pulls out two to three percent a year in cash, cash on cash. So it's going to be relatively low yield on that side. So those type of tenants are what they call credit tenants or investment grade tenants. And those are typically what your institutional investors, your pension funds, your life insurance groups, they like to put their money in there because it, it is, it's their name brand tenants about as low risk as you can have. And, you know, correspondingly, they're okay having, you know, just a couple percent a year in cash um, come out of it. So conversely, the investments we pursue are kind of more the equivalent of the class B value add equivalent to use a multifamily example. So we are getting what they call sub-investment grade, which simply means our tenants are not publicly traded. They usually don't have an outside credit agency. So you don't have like a Moody's or an S&P giving them a bond rating or, you know, a, a AA or BB minus credit score on there. So instead we come in, we actually have a credit advisory team in-house and we, we do our own credit analysis for each of these deals. So we do a, a heavy look and we look at everything from, you know, your standard, your balance sheets, your financial summaries, what do the revenues look like, EBITDAs, EBITDA margins, what does the debt load of the tenant company look like, and what are the forecasts, you know, how diversified are their customer base, really all the tenant health stuff you should be looking for. And we look for trend. We don't like to buy turnaround companies that, you know, maybe they've lost money the last three years, but this is the breakout year. We try to avoid those. Really, we look for the bread and butter, you know, they've remained profitable. They're increasing growth, say, you know, two to 3% a year. We're super happy with that because that is a long-term stable tenant that we want in the real estate that we're buying. And so when you think about the returns, what kind of returns should an investor expect and what's the hold time? Like in multifamily deals in the B class to make the same comparison, in a B class deal, you're typically, I mean, I guess it's changed a little bit, but somewhere between seven and 8% cash on cash returns with like an 18% annualized return over a three to five year hold period. What does it look like in this space? Yeah, very similar to that. So okay. our, our cash on cash will always, we pay the full pref and it'll start at a minimum of an 8% preferred return. Mm -hmm. And the model that we use, we actually increase that preferred return every year because mm -hmm. of those built-in rent bumps. Right. And, and there is no expenses. So we know with a high degree of certainty we can pay. So that the PREF pays full cash on cash from day one, which is great. Mm -hmm. You don't have to okay. wait for this business plan to you know, be enacted successfully because all the work's been done in advance. All the work mm -hmm. is that, that structure there. And then um, when we sell, very similar to a multifamily, we Turn capital after roughly about a five-year hold. And then we do we do an 80-20 split. So 80% of the, the profits generated go to, to the investor group. And historically, I think we've exited about just shy of 15 deals. Historically, we've delivered between 18 and 20% annualized returns. And what's the upside though? I mean, because obviously like in apartments, we're going in, we're adding the value, we're increasing, you know, we're doing the refi or the sale, and that's how you make money because the property is generating more revenue. And I get that. And it's similar because you're getting more rents as the years go on. So what you started out in rents in year one and year five, ideally you're getting more rents and those are built in. Is that the value add or what is the, how do you get that additional 9% annualized um, in, in something like this? So a lot of the value comes in just being the one who structures the sale lease back. So mm -hmm. you are taking a, a piece of real estate that was privately owned by this company and now you are, we are effectively being the first outside landlord and we are putting a brand new, super long-term lease on here. So by putting a 20-year term, even after we hold it for five years, we have 15 years left on that term. 
which mm-hmm. is a huge asset. We can sell to the next buyer. They could hold it seven years and then sell right. to buyer after that to hold another eight years before they even have to think about a releasing event. So that's yeah. the first way we create value. The second is, you know, very consistent. We always do fixed rate debt, you know, 10 year term fixed rate debt, and we're paying down principal on the debt every month. So that's, you know, kind of your slow, gradual way. Third way is, so even if you consider a constant cap rate, assume cap rates don't move, we are building NOI in a very predictable fashion because there is no expenses. So just a quick review, net operating income is effectively rents minus expenses. If you remove that expense row there, then simply your rents are your NOI. And so because we have built-in rent increases, we know with a very high degree of certainty that that NOI is going to increase every year through that way as well. And then the last way, a little more subjective, but we've actually been fairly successful on it historically, is so imagine you have two properties, right? And they're identical. They're right next to each other, same metro, same everything, you know, same structure, opposite sides of the street, right? One is a, a Home Depot, right? And the other one is a, you know, kind of a, a regional home improvement store. Uh, the rents are, are identical. The leases are identical. Which building would you pay more for? Home Depot. Oh, gosh. Home Depot, <laughs> right? <laughs> so because you're like, well, this is a stronger tenant. So the same goes with industrials. So if I buy, let's say, just to use an example, right? We just sold a, a property that did well. We bought the property in 2017. It was a privately held aerospace company, aerospace uh, parts manufacturer. They had just sold to a private equity group who executed a sale leaseback with us. And that private equity group was very successful at what they sought out to do. And they actually ended up roughly tripling the revenues of this aerospace company. And so now here, our tenant, the strength of tenant over the course of three to four years, massively increased. Now we have a much stronger tenant. The revenues, you know, tripled their EBITDAs, margins had doubled. I mean, it was, they had really just done an excellent job at growing this company the way they thought they had. So when we were able to sell just that piece alone from the strength of tenant really drove down the cap rate and we were able to sell at a fairly significant premium. Interesting. So it's almost like in addition to the, the real estate is one aspect, but it's almost like not as important as the strength of the tenant and really taking that, right? Like taking that time to really vet them, really understand their business model, where Mm -hmm. they're going and the potential for if they get this capital and they reinvest it into the business, where could that take them? That's, as I understand it, that's a big part of the value that you're coming in, you and your investors are coming in to help these companies unlock some of the capital that's tied up in their real estate so that they can reinvest in their business, grow their business, and then everybody wins. You guys win as the owners and they win as the business owners. Absolutely. I actually recently read this fascinating article that described the mechanism, effectively what you just described, as a bond investment wrapped in real estate. And stop and think about this. So it is the consistent cash flow of a bond that's tied to the risk of that company, really. You know, the, the credit, the financial viability of that company, the same way a, a bond is. However, it's wrapped in real estate because you're not buying a piece of that company, you're buying real estate tenanted by that company with a long term lease in such a way that the tenant's performance is tied to the value of your real estate. 
Interesting. Fascinating. So fascinating. This is so interesting. Oh my goodness. I'm curious to ask this question, obviously, given where we are in the world and with everything going on, it sounds like you guys have been doing this for a while. So how, what is the effect of, of COVID? What has it been on the business, if anything at all, or nothing at all? What are the, some of the risks or how in this new world that we're living in, hopefully temporarily, how do you approach new acquisitions? Do you have to come at it with any new angle? Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, we were very fortunate throughout all of 2020. We had the best, best year our firms ever had. Wow. We didn't have a, a single missed rent payment. Every single one of our portfolio companies, or excuse me, every, every one of our tenants through our real estate portfolio paid on time communicated well, you know, a few of them said, Hey, you know, we're watching this, but yes, you know, we're not going to ask for any sort of concessions. The only outlier on that was we had a single tenant health club and they were in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, and they were super upfront with us and said, look, we're closed. We're forced shut here. And they said, Hey, so we negotiated a three month forbearance on their, their rent. And at the same time, our real estate lender, we were able to negotiate the same thing with them. So effectively, everyone nice. put a pause on any sort of cash flow, right? And we still accrued interest, as did our lender. But actually, the investors in that deal, when it was all said and done, you know, it was only a three-month pause. But they actually will end up seeing a slightly higher IRR than they were originally on the pro forma. So yeah, it worked out really well in, on that one. And really, the rest were essential industries, manufacturing companies by and large across most of the portfolio. And I mean. These are companies that have been around 40, 50 years. So this wasn't their first rodeo going through a crisis right. event. It wasn't their first time going through a recessionary event. So they were fine, you know, and they keep cash reserves. They have liquidity. They have lines of credit in a way that really allows them to have a much higher degree of resiliency than what you might see in smaller tenants. Mm-hmm. And what does your acquisitions sort of projection look like for the year? You guys buying a lot? Are you seeing a lot coming online? more so than last year or less, or what do you guys see? You know, it always ebbs and flows. Last mm-hmm. year, I believe we bought about 10 properties and we okay. sold about five. So we, okay. we've kind of hit a point where we're largely in equilibrium mode. Um, this mm-hmm. year, you know, we didn't see anything in the, in the first two months that kind of met our criteria, but now the pipeline's starting to pick up again. So, you know, I think we're on track to probably do 10 to 12 projects this year as well. Nice, fun. Quick yeah. logistical question. So since you guys are not really responsible for any repairs, maintenance, anything like that, do you have property management in place or an asset manager, or is it just like you acquire it and you just collect the rent? I wish I could show you our operating account right now. It's painfully <laughs> simple. It literally, you have the rent comes in, you pay the bank, you pay the investors, and that's it. This, this is the kind of investment and accounting Annie needs in her life. Right? <laughs> I know. I'm like, where do I sign up? From the flying world, you know, as a pilot, we had this acronym called KISS. And KISS was keep it simple, stupid. And like, and it was yeah. so easy to kind of, you know, go off in a rabbit hole and try to overthink things. And, you know, someone would come over and just remind you, hey, you know, sometimes like just simplicity is mm-hmm. one of the best, best strategies. And I really like industrial for that matter, because I feel like, I mean, it's keeping it simple, right? Yeah. Love it. Love it. I oh think this goodness. is so great because I think so many people are so intimidated by industrial because it yep. just seems like something that's so hard to understand, so hard to get into. Yeah. Sure. So I love the way that you've described how it works, described the model so that it's simple for people to understand. 
Awesome. Well, we could go on and on because I have a ton of other questions swimming around in my head, but we must move on. So we're going to move on to the Life of Money show spotlight round. We're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? That's a great question. Me personally, I like having like micro goals and long-term goals. And that's kind of my, my life blueprint. I like having enough wiggle room to let life be spontaneous when you need it to be. You ever go on vacation with someone who overplans things and you're like, this is too much, but you know, you should have like you know, a rough idea. But you know, for me, I always try to have two kind of ongoing projects at a time for something that's really personal improvement based. So right now, my two things, one is language. So I'm, I'm learning German. Um, I have a, a good motivator. I'm, I'm recently married and my wife's from Munich. So <laughs> spending a, you know, about 45 minutes to an hour a day in German. And that creates a lot of forced structure on my life. And then the other one's professional and I am getting my CCIM certification. So that's a certified commercial investment member. And really that's you know, kind of a, a high level designator for really underwriting and you know, this spreadsheet pro forma underwriting valuation business modeling, if you will, in the commercial real estate world um, certification there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. A lot goes into that. I know it's not yeah. an, easy, <laughs> an easy thing to get, so good luck with that. <laughs> Love you. that you mentioned the leaving room for spontaneity because sometimes I'm a planner, like through and through, like everything planned to the T, but sometimes I get lazy. And so now I'll call it that I'm just leaving room for spontaneity <laughs> instead of me being lazy. <laughs> you have to though. I, totally. you know, I, re I read somewhere that yeah. you make your own luck and I love that phrase. Yeah. And part of that is giving yourself opportunity for the unexpected yeah. to happen. And That's if you have everything structured to a T, You've left yourself no opportunity for the unexpected there. That's a hundred percent why I didn't go for my run this morning. That's there exactly <laughs> why, because I was waiting for the spontaneity and the random things that could happen in the morning with my kids. So I love that. <laughs> All right. Second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that'll make an impact in others' lives right now? Let's see. I mean, one personal thing I do is I ask for a better price and you know, I, I thought about this in advance, you know, when you told me we were going to talk about this and I was like, all right, what's one thing that really saves me a lot of money on a regular basis? And I mean, everything from, you know, the car rental counter to, you know, whether you're, you know, um, negotiating rent with a landlord, but there's so many ways and, and it's so easy to get fixated just on price as the one, you know, wiggle uh, negotiator, if you will. But there's so many other kind of out of the box things you can think of in terms of volume or in terms of speed of, of delivery or in terms of, you know, commitment for future stuff. I mean, or just ask and just say, hey, can you get me a better price? And there's effectively no downside. You're not really being a jerk. You're just asking a very polite, respectful question. The worst that happens right. is they say no, and then you're back where right. you started. And, uh, yeah. but so often, you know, they'll pause and think, and actually, you know, I can get you a 20% with this, you know, blah, blah, blah code, or I can throw in an extra parking space with your apartment or whatever it might be. And just asking really delivers a lot of the unexpected there, I found. Yeah. And I feel like it 
helps teach you and remind you not to take things for face value too, right? That like, just because things are the way they are, doesn't always mean that it has to be that way. And I think all too often we walk through life with that mentality, like, oh, well, they said it, you know, they said it's a hundred bucks, like for to rent a car, that is what it is. But, you know, when you go into it with this mentality, it leaves the opportunity for, you know, the realization that things aren't always set in stone and, and things are always negotiable, which I always remind myself of too. So I love 100%. that. And it feels so good when you pay less than market price. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on that. 100%. Love it. All right. Last question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? My one thing is funneling all my good habits and trying to remove all my bad habits into my nine-year-old. <laughs> so I'm uh, really, it's interesting. And, you know, you mentioned kids as well, you know, just this idea that here's a blueprint that potentially if successful, you could really, you know, save them from some of your worst mistakes potentially, and, and put maybe a couple of your, your really good nuggets that you've acquired over the years and, um, you know, effectively make a a better version two of yourself, if you will. And uh, I, I don't know, I kind of love that idea. And then the other one I was thinking of is I travel a lot. And a lot of that was, you know, from the pilot side. And I still, I travel quite frequently, you know, myself, I've, I've been to just 99 countries now. And I just, I really actively try to get, you know, outside of, of commonly touristed areas. And I really go out of my way to redefine people's impressions of Americans. And I, I feel like, you know, anywhere you go, people have this idea of what they think of Americans. <laughs> being. And I'm like, all I think of myself is, all right, I want to be better, better educated, a better listener and more humble and want to give something back in exchange for the experiences I'm taking here when I travel. And I find if you're just a little bit deliberate about that, Really, I, I mean, you end up with some of the most amazing experiences and you meet great people and, you know, maybe you've just tipped the scale on, you know, how they view your, your you know, whole nationality as a whole because of just that in interface with you. So that's, that's the other piece I, mm -hmm. I try to focus on. Yeah, it's all about that intention at the core. And what you're talking about, that's, you know, that's creating a legacy, you know, through future generations, teaching them what you've learned, as well as, you know, being a good example out in the world. 99 countries, I cannot believe it. Wait, what's your 100th country going to be? You've got to have something in mind, right? It, it was, I was booked for early May 2020 to Guatemala. Clearly, uh, something ah. happened to disrupt that. So. <laughs> I don't know yet. So. So I'm planning a belated wedding right now, uh, potentially to Croatia. That could be a hundred. We'll see. But you know, I really You're I don't room I don't for spontaneity, right? Well, and I don't put too much weight on number hundred because I know there's going to be more beyond that. So exactly. Well, all that is so fantastic, Neil. So tell our listeners if they wanted to learn more about the investments that you guys do or follow up with you. What's the best place they can go to learn more? Yeah, the best way is just take a look at our website is uh, magcp.com or just shoot me a note directly. I'd love to hear your comments on the show or any questions, or we can talk a little bit about the investment network that we have. Um, you can fire me an email at neil, that's N-E-I-L, at magcp.com. 
Perfect. We'll have all of that for our listeners in the show notes. Neil Walgren, Chief Operating Officer at MAG Capital Partners. Neil, thank you so much for sharing your story with our listeners today. You're listening to The Life & Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb.